The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. Member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable. Interviews with the world's most innovative thinkers working to solve the world's biggest problems. My solvable is tackling cervical cancer in low- and middle-income countries where 90% of cervical cancer deaths happen. Wherever there's a pap smear available, that's what most women in the U.S. and Europe know, then cervical cancer is something that we don't even think about. And so with very low resources, very little resources, without doctors, without even clinics, uh, we can go and screen women out in provinces and schoolhouses and workplaces, and we can defeat cervical cancer. And really what we're talking about doing is is preventing cervical cancer. That is Dr. Vince Gennaro. He's an internal medicine doctor, a global health specialist, and a social justice advocate. Now, here on Solvable, we do not shy away from the biggest problems, and this one certainly qualifies. Cervical cancer is a disease that's fueled by social, economic, and political inequities. The World Health Organization puts the situation in pretty blunt terms. Nine out of ten women who die from cervical cancer are in poor countries. Cervical cancer is both preventable by vaccines and education and it's treatable. But when prevention and treatment are missing, it means that some of the most vulnerable women in the world are dying unnecessarily. It probably goes without saying that this is not fair. In sub-Saharan Africa, cervical cancer is the number one cancer killer of women. It's so sad because we've seen these amazing health gains for women made in maternal health and HIV care around the world. So it's kind of a disaster to see that rising cervical cancer deaths undermine those gains. 
the International Agency for Research on Cancer made some really scary sounding projections that show that unless preventative measures are implemented ASAP, by 2040, there'll be almost half a million deaths from cervical cancer per year. Here in the US, sadly, more than 4,000 women die from it each year. That is too many, but it's nowhere close to the scale that it is in low and middle income countries. Any woman listening that's here in a wealthier country will know about vaccines or are going for a smear test. Not fun, but just something that we do. And it works. We just have to share it. Preventing and treating women's cancer in low-income countries is Dr. Vince Gennaro's life's work. He is so smart and passionate that he makes this challenge, which we know is serious and deadly, seem manageable. He's worked in seven countries, he speaks five languages, all of which you'll hear in this interview. No, you won't. He is just speaking English in this interview. He talks to Anne Applebaum about cancer research here in the US, about how politics and education intersect with health, and how the nonprofit that he founded, Innovating Health International, does this huge work in countries like Haiti and Rwanda to look after women and to teach us to look after ourselves. Okay, take a listen. What's the problem in a nutshell? Can you describe it in a couple of sentences? Globally, over half a million women are dying of cervical cancer every single year. It is a leading killer of women in low-income countries, even though it's not even in the top 10 cancer killers in U.S. and Europe. So there's a huge disparity between what we know we can do and what we are actually doing. And when we're talking about a half a million deaths globally, Women, these are women who are in their economically most productive years in their 40s and 50s. They are young mothers still. Um, They're raising children. And um, when cervical cancer affects their life, it affects society at large. And what is it about this problem that makes you want to tackle it? I think in every society, women are the backbone of it. The, The huge disparity, I think, is what makes it so such a problem that it's like, well, okay, we know we can fix this. You know, when HIV was an issue in the early 2000s, and um, we were treating it just fine in U.S. and Europe, we talked about expensive medications and difficult regimens and testing that was difficult. Uh, and, and so there were, were real technological challenges to rolling out widespread HIV treatment in lower-income countries. With cervical cancer, we can screen with tests that cost $2 that has plastic speculum and regular store-bought vinegar and a light. Those are the three things that we really need to screen a woman for cervical cancer. So it really is something that can be done literally anywhere a woman can lay flat in privacy. It's a question then of how do we reach those women? How do we engage them in the health system to the point that, that they understand the issue, that they realize the value of it, that they understand the the longer-term consequences of it, even in the immediacy of the life that they're living, which, you know, may often be in, in poverty or difficulty, feeding and educating their own children. To get women to come in and engage with the health system is more the problem. To get the health system to reach out to these women and offer these simple services is more the issue than anything to do with having enough doctors or having enough clinics. So when you're faced with a problem like this one, where you have the perspective of many millions of women in Haiti, for example, who don't know about cervical cancer, don't know about testing, often don't realize they have cancer until it's too late to treat. How do you begin thinking about it? What are the first steps you take? How do you break down the problem? 
You know, I think initially in, in 2016, uh, Innovating Health International and our partners, we carried out a, a survey across the country of Haiti, uh, interviewing 500 women and men to talk about what their attitudes were towards cervical cancer and breast cancer. You know, we have to understand is that what it is that they know, what it is that they believe, what it is that they have access to for, in order for us to be able to formulate a plan to attack it. And so we found some pretty stunning things. Between 20 and 30 percent of women don't know, didn't, had never heard of cervical cancer. They didn't know what the symptoms were. They didn't know what the tests involved. Most stunningly, 75% of Haitian women couldn't identify where their cervix is. So if I'm trying to convince you to take a test that for every thousand women we screen, we're going to save 10 lives. But if you don't know where the cervix is, what cancer of the cervix causes, where around you to get the test, why would you get the test? You have immediate concerns. You have to, you're worrying about feeding and educating your children, taking care of your family. So we start there. Obviously, it's a pretty big uphill task if, if we're looking at those kinds of numbers of 75% of women don't know where their cervix is. How are we going to convince you to take this test and the importance of it? So looking at it like that, then we say, okay, then it has to start with education. It has to start with awareness. And most importantly, it's got to start with what we call engagement with the health system, that it's not just, okay, we're going to give you a little lecture. It's more than that. Part of it is them knowing where the nearest health center is, knowing the times it's open, knowing what services they offer knowing the prices that they may have to pay if there are user fees. These are the things that, again, a woman who is struggling to work and raise a family at the same time may not have access to that information. And so we want to reach out to them with the health system as well as teaching them where to go. The other problem is that we're talking about preventative health. And when we're talking about preventative health, that's a more difficult thing for places and for people who, will, again, are focused on the here and now and, and surviving through today. Um, we know that when care is free, when we have had free cervical cancer screenings at major hospitals around the country of Haiti, that the screening numbers are very low because the most common barriers are actually not economic, even in a poor place like Haiti. They're structural. So that's what we talk about when we talk about engagement with the health system. And that really, for us, was the, the starting point. What about prejudice? Are people disturbed by the idea of that kind of exam? Is it a cultural problem as well? It certainly is in many cultures, in Haiti not particularly, and but in Malawi, another place that I work, it, it can be, and then certainly in other cultures in Asia, that's an issue. I, I think that's why one of the things that we're doing is self-vaginal swabs, meaning that the woman doesn't have to be examined at all, meaning that she inserts a Q-tip into her vagina, and that is enough, sensitive enough, the test for us to be able to determine if they are at risk for cervical cancer or not. So you adjust the test depending on where you are? Yeah, those kinds of technologies. Cool thing about this is, uh, you know, I said we can do this with simple, no technology, and that's certainly true. But a technology like that, that HPV test with a self-swab, opens up a whole new level of possibilities. It means that we don't need a doctor because we're, the doctor is generally necessary to do a cervical exam on a lot of patients or, or even a highly trained midwife. We can have someone with a high school education do the education for the patients and teach them how to do the swab. So, and it's not subjective at all. It's scientific, it is very sensitive and just about as much as a pap smear that we would get in the U.S. So those kinds of technologies are helping us leapfrog and they're also helping us overcome barriers that may be there culturally. I think one of the barriers is certainly sexism, gender-based violence, gender stigma. Those are the things that really cut across cultures even in the U.S. and Europe. Those are true barriers in a place like Haiti where the male partner is paying for testing, 
then they certainly have a say in, in what tests that the women undergo. In our study that we had 40% of our breast and cervical cancer patients had been victims of gender-based violence, whether it was physical, sexual, economic. And that was compared with 28% in the general population. So we know for a fact that globally that gender-based violence increases the risk of cervical cancer because it increases the risk of transmission of HPV. And now we know in Haiti, at least, that the women who have cancer are more likely to be victims of gender-based violence. So these kinds of things matter. And even when we did our survey, the most common cited cause for breast or cervical cancer in Haiti was were sexual violence, so rough play with breasts during sex, certain sexual positions they thought would lead to uh, cervical cancer. So there is an association in the women's mind, at least, between some form of sexual violence, whether it was consensual or not, as being linked to these problems. But is that true? Certainly not the, you know, rough sex and those kinds of things don't increase the chances of of HPV, but more partners does. And so I don't know about the association between people who have more partners and gender-based violence, but when a woman generally can't choose her partners, when she can't negotiate condom use and those kinds of things, then she is is at a higher risk of getting HPV. Mm -hmm. How did we persuade women in the United States to take these tests? Is, Is there a history to this story? Yeah, I mean, the, the pap smear has been around for 80 years, and, and so that's part of it. We all grew up knowing about the pap smear since we hit puberty and had the birds and the bees talk. So it's something that's been ingrained in us from day one. It was ingrained in our mothers as well. And our grandmothers would probably be the ones who could tell us what they, they remembered when they first heard about the pap smear. But so we're talking about that kind of level where 20% know what cervical cancer causes. So if we're at that level, what do we do in the U.S.? We've had access to the care for a long time. Right now, we have NFL football players wearing pink bracelets and pink cleats for breast cancer. So those kinds of things where the awareness is everywhere, right? It's, it's almost unavoidable to talk about going to get your mammogram because of breast cancer. Obviously, in the U.S., we've now, we're past cervical cancer, so we don't even talk about it anymore. And that may be one of the issues with HPV vaccination in the U.S. is that people don't really remember cervical cancer because they don't know anybody who's had it. Whereas in Haiti, these women, they're dying in their 40s and 50s. It's a really terrible death. It's, it's, it's quite the downer, but at the same time, I think we've forgotten that somewhat in the U.S. and Europe. And, and that's possibly why that there's still a half million women dying globally. I, I think we're, we're there a bit with, with cervical cancer where we are complacent, where we can actually have a discussion about whether it's worth it or not to have an HPV vaccine. Of course it is. And of course, it's needed. And of course, it's going to, you know, we know it's having huge impacts on HPV prevalence in the United States and Europe. So not only how do we get there in in Haiti, but how do we reawaken that consciousness in the U.S. and Europe that we're thinking about why we need the HPV vaccine and we're thinking about how do we push our governments and our companies to be more aware of these problems in in low-income countries to expand the services that are available. I was very struck by, I watched a, um, a video clip you made about some of the work you've done in Haiti in the past, and you spoke about giving treatment to some women who had just been identified as having cancer, some who had late-stage cancer, giving them an extra two or three years of their lives that they might not have had otherwise. And you kept repeating that you wanted to give them care just like in the United States as the kind of treatment they would have if they were in a different country. This is a more personal question, but that struck me. It's clear that you have a a sense of injustice that people in Haiti and in, in other countries that you've worked in 
aren't getting the same level of health care that Americans get or that people in, in the developed world get. Where does that sense of justice come from? Certainly for my parents, lots of love and gratitude to them. I think also I was raised Catholic, but I think the, the Catholic's tradition of service to the poor is, is one of the reasons I am where I am. And I think that, you know, whatsoever you do unto the least of my brothers, you do unto me. And that's something, again, we've forgotten in the United States, but I think it's important. And I think that's something that drives me. More importantly than that is once you're there, once you're you're experiencing and living with these people. Cancer patients, they come in, we, we run a chemotherapy center as well and at Innovating Health International, and we do breast cancer and cervical cancer. And the women come in and they're getting chemotherapy and surgery for months. And so you really get to know them. You know, the Haitians are very emotive, expressive people, and it, it's, it's hard not to, to fall in love with them so quickly. So I've watched a lot of women that I love and respect die. And that is, it has to have an impact on you. Some points it was too much and, and I withdrew. And now I've gotten to a place where I can be present and experience the sadness and grieve with the family and then use that sense of injustice to drive us to do more. It really was heartening to, to know that we can make that difference because I, I cried a lot of nights in 2013, 14, and 15 about those women. And to see those numbers is, is uh, you know, we were making an impact. Give me an example of one of your patients. How does how can chemotherapy change a family's life or change the way, you know, change the way a child grows up? Even when a woman comes in with stage four, we can still treat them, uh, both breast and cervical. And so the chemotherapy for breast or ovarian cancer, we can extend their life for for two, three, four years. Our, you know, our median survival is about 18 months, which is pretty close to what it is in certain, you know, middle-income and high-income countries. Okay, well, so the woman's only going to live another 18 months. What's the point? Well, to her 10-year-old son, who then becomes 11 before she passes, that matters. That's two more years of schooling he gets to go to with her working because she's not in bed. She's back at work. She's caring for him. For a, a husband, if he's there, that matters in terms of having help raising the, the, the kids. Uh, and for the woman, of course, it matters to have two more years of life. And like we said, that that is something that they deserve as human beings. Healthcare is a human right, no matter where in the world you live. And, you know, when we get them at earlier stages, we can cure them. And, you know, my mentor, Paul Farmer, would always say it's almost as if they had a treatable disease because it is treatable. It's just a question of getting to them with, with these simple treatments. We can treat a woman, chemotherapy and surgery and all that for about 1200 bucks per woman, which sounds like a lot, but we spend 50000 or 100000 per case of breast cancer in, in the United States. So it really is, is not much in terms of the global resources. And, and those prices will come down as chemo prices come down and volume goes up. How you scale this? Because, you know, you're one doctor and you can only be in so many places. How do you spread these tactics to others? Yeah, it's all about education and training. There are six doctors at the Innovating Health International Cancer Center in Haiti right now, and they are seeing the patients on a daily basis. We trained them to give chemo, and you know, I'm not an oncologist. I'm an internal medicine doctor. There are no fellowship-trained oncologists in Haiti, and, and realistically, we don't really need them yet uh, in any low-income country. What we need is access to basic care. So we're, we're kind of, again, back to where HIV was in 2003, 2004, where we have the tools, but there's no specialists in it. Globally, HIV is treated by generalists. In the United States, it's generally treated by infectious disease doctors. So in the United States, cancer is treated by oncologists, 
And globally, we need to have generalists or internists treating cancer. So we need to be training lots and lots more internal medicine doctors to give chemo, to give it safely, to give it properly, and to the patients who, who need it and how and when. But it is not that complex. You know, in the United States and Europe, it's gotten a whole lot more complex with genetic testing and higher order things. But if we're talking about ensuring first-line care and ensuring a basic standard of care, then it's not that difficult. It's not that expensive. And we can train a doctor who's an internal medicine doctor in a week to give chemo. And we've given chemo at four different public hospitals in Haiti. We are launching a permanent program now in the north in Capation and train doctors and nurses to do it. And they come watch us for a week. We give lectures. We have discussions about it. And then after that, we're, we're in touch by phone and email and to talk about, all right, this particular case, is it fall within the algorithm or not? As we expand treatment, uh, that's, the way it's gonna, that's the way we're going to do it, is by, by training other doctors and nurses and not waiting for oncologists to come down and, and train. So in Haiti, we have probably 10 different doctors giving chemo through our program over the last five years, and we've trained them all, watched them, we accompany them. You know, that's the way things are going to move forward and not through donations of medicines and foreign doctors coming in and treating patients. It's going to be through uh, training a local workforce to do this, exactly like we did with HIV, and that's as a result of rolling out services with algorithms and in in simple, uh, low-cost ways, And, and cancer care is there. We're there. It's just a question of doing it. In order to do this, obviously, you need to speak the language of local people. So you speak Creole. Um, maybe you could say a few words about how you learned it. Um, and then you had to design a campaign in Creole, um, you know, to reach very poor people. Can you talk a little bit about how the, um, you know, how you thought about preparing the education campaign? Yeah, I, I've been blessed to, to speak a couple languages. I speak about five languages. And so uh, I learned Creole in South Florida growing up. Uh, uh, And, you know, I think in anything that we do, you know, I'm an American, and when I go to Haiti or go to Malawi, I try to stand on the side um, because this is not my place, it's not my country, um, it's not my culture, not my people. And so I want to be there to support the local staff to be able to, to roll out those things. So when we talk about the survey that we did, we had five different Haitian organizations There was 10 people in the room, two of whom were foreigners and eight who were Haitian. The survey was written in Creole. It was never written in English and then translated. It was carried out in Creole. The results were entered into a Creole spreadsheet. We had to teach uh, an artificial intelligence program to interpret the data in Creole because we didn't want to translate it and, and, uh, and lose that authenticity with it. So same thing with our awareness materials. Um, the pictures in it and the, uh, were all drawn by a graphic designer who's the son of a patient of ours. The videos we have on our website, kanseit.com, uh, it's an all Creole website, have all uh, breast cancer and cervical cancer survivors as the actors and actresses. Um, and they are the ones who wrote it, actually. So I, you know, I've had very little to do with it uh, other than, you know, facilitate, um, you know, help people, give them the resources. The Haitians in particular are super creative. And so they're, they're really good at, uh, at, at those kinds of things. And the videos are, you know, they're not just uh, someone talking to the camera. It's a conversation. It's a little bit of a soap opera and, and people get involved in them, even though they're only three minutes long. So it's more about, um, accompaniment and helping our, our colleagues in low-income countries to, express themselves uh, and you know what they need is they need some time space money 
to be able to accomplish those things. Uh, and it's not really about um, us doing it. It's about us standing standing aside and letting them do their thing like we would do here, uh, but, but we just have a whole lot more resources. Give me some examples of success. So how do you know you're succeeding? I mean, this is a vast problem. You're tackling it from different angles. You're doing prevention. You're doing new kinds of treatment. You're training doctors. What makes you think you can, can solve this problem? You know, we talked about the personal aspect. Now I'm, I sit in an office and talk and write grants and think of ideas and, and look at numbers. And so those numbers are really what we're talking about. And it's, it's impersonal. But at the same time, if I say we screened 4,000 women at a factory for cervical cancer, then we know we, we saved at least 10 lives. We know that that was a successful program because we did what we set out to do with the budget we had. We know that we've handed out 60,000 booklets for breast and cervical cancer awareness. We know, like I said, we've trained 50 doctors and, and 90 nurses in cancer treatment over the last three years. Like I said, the stat I'm most proud of is the fact that we've decrease the number of women coming in in stage four breast cancer from 40% to 22% in, in five years. Because I know that is huge numbers of lives saved. Our population is also getting younger. There's more women under 40 coming in. We're going to treat close to 300 women with breast cancer this year alone. Um, we've already, we've treated over a thousand in the last couple of years. So the numbers, while impersonal, are certainly telling and then, you know, you look at like on our website, there's Nadine, who's 26 when she came in with breast cancer. She had the support of loving husband. So she not only found the mass, but sought out care and got to us quickly. And, you know, she's cured. She's now 30 years old. She's got two kids. Every time I see Nadine, it, you know, it makes me smile. It, it's those two sides. It's the numbers, uh, the number of doctors trained, the number of people that were treating and screening and the lives touched. We know we have the tools. We know we have, we're making progress. The fact that I'm sitting here speaking with you tells me that we're on to something, that this is an issue that people care about and want to hear about, and this is an issue that's moving forward. You know, we just got to gotta get over that hump to the point where we are now rolling these programs out. We're not talking about pilot programs or small scale, that we're talking about national, international, global, and, and really decreasing that number of half a million women dying every year from cervical cancer. And it's totally solvable. What kind of decrease are we talking about and by when? What would be your guess? So even if we were to test every woman in low- and middle-income countries for cervical cancer even once in their lifetime, one pap smear, one HPV test, one test with vinegar, we'd reduce cervical cancer mortality by 80 or 90%. So we really don't have to set up an infrastructure where they're getting pap smears every three years. Uh, that would To get to 100%, we would. But to get to 80%, which then we're talking about 400,000 lives saved. We just have to screen them once. That's why we're talking about mobile screening. We're going to go out into a clinic in the middle of nowhere with a community healthcare worker with a backpack full of HPV swabs. She talks to the women, gives them a lecture on not only cervical and breast cancer, but also sexual reproductive health. They do a breast exam. She teaches them how to do a self-breast exam. And then the women do uh, insert the HPV self-swab. We, we come back to that same town two weeks later with a midwife. And for all those women who are HPV positive, it's around 25%, we treat them right then and there with a battery-operated piece of equipment that basically uses heat to remove the pre-cervical cancer from the cervix. It's, it's battery-operated, it's portable, it's about the size of a large cell phone or a tablet, and it can be done anywhere a woman can lay flat. We can do it in a church, on a church pew, behind a curtain. You know, those kinds of things are, are I think, what makes this what makes this feasible. Um, yeah, there's other technology from mobile ODT. It's the EVA Culpa scope, and it's a it's a 
connected to a smartphone, and it's got a little camera and magnifying glass to look at the cervix, and we can take pictures and stream video and, and quality control with it, but the machine is actually going to be able to tell a normal cervix versus an abnormal cervix come this fall. That's interesting. So you're talking about actually a combination of low-tech and very high-tech, potentially. So, then, so, the, so part of the way to solve it is to combine them together. Well, so we're talking about doing tomorrow's test for cervical cancer today. Haiti is leapfrogging the United States by using these HPV tests. Our daughters will not be getting pap smears. And, and so Haiti is moving past that and leapfrogging, and that's, that's important. We're pairing it with education and engagement. Uh, we're coming to them. We're going to their workplace. We're going to their, their church on a Sunday and screening 50 women. And everything's battery operated. Everything can be, you know, use internet or not internet if there's no service out where they are. It's, it is beautiful, simple technology, which means you don't have to train the people as much. The, the cost of the, you know, the equipment is two, three thousand bucks, which spread out over, you know, is nothing comparatively speaking. And, you know, because you're paying a community healthcare worker instead of a doctor, the costs have dropped significantly for the human resources side. So using technology, going out there with a backpack full of supplies, and engaging on a human level, convincing them to take the test, telling them how important it is, and then treating them right then and there, you know, in this one-room schoolhouse, in this church, that's what makes this a solvable problem, is, is getting out into the community, to, to community-based education, screening, and treatment. So people listening to this program, what can they do to help solve the problem of high rates of cervical cancer in the developing world? I mean, I think the first thing we can do is make sure you're getting screened and make sure we're getting vaccinated at home. I think that's got to be baseline. And we have to have real conversations about the effectiveness of these interventions so that we understand how effective they are in other places. Um, if there's any doubt of how effective a HPV vaccine is here in the United States, it's going to be hard to convince people of the solvability of this problem. I think advocating for cancer research is always helpful for us. The, you know, the cancer moonshot in the United States, those are the things that produce technologies that help places like Haiti leapfrog. I think, you know, it doesn't make sense to have this discussion without talking about voting. Um, you, need to, you need to vote uh, your conscience and, and vote where to make things better where people live. If we're talking about mass immigration in Europe and Central America, that, that's partially because their services don't exist where they live and they, they are coming for a better life. And then vote your conscience uh, through your wallet by purchasing from companies like Gap and Levi's and other companies that are using fair trade practices and, and providing health care to the people who in the supply chain. And then finally, be open with your, with your heart and with your wallet. I think it's important. America is the most generous country in the world. 2% of, of all of our income goes to donations. And, and that's by far and away more than any other country in the world. And so I want to encourage people to get out there and, and give. Uh, it, the, the money does end up helping people, you know, do your research, do your due, due diligence, but donate your time, donate your money. It matters. Such a great conversation. Now, cervical cancer, it's still a threat in the global north, but isn't it crazy how those of us lucky enough to live in some of the 84 countries around the world with this HPV vaccine program, it's like we've almost forgotten about the diseases it's protecting us from. And an interesting side note is that more than 20 of those countries now give the vaccine to boys and girls. I'm sure it struck you, as it did me, how practical-minded Dr. De Janeiro is, at the same time as being really compassionate. 
He mentioned this book called Scarcity, The New Science of Having Less and How It Defines Our Lives, which weirdly I happen to be reading at the moment. So I want to add my endorsement for what that's worth. Now that is your homework before next week's episode. No, it's not. I'm just kidding. Thanks for listening. Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation with production by Laura Hyde, Hester Kant, Laura Sheeter and Ruth Barnes from Chalk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, research by Sher Vincent, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise and special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fine, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.